Good morning, everybody. Now, um, I don't, can you hear it over here now, out of this one? We've had all kinds of trouble with our sound system today. Have you noticed a little bit of sound system problem? Like over here, it sounded a little quiet. Over here, it sounded really loud. We were trying to get the sound over this way. And then we had problems on the stage. And just now, this piano went off power. It's crazy. We had some lightning go on. But this window was happening. But didn't the band lead us in a good worship this morning? Amen. Amen. And even in the midst of all the struggles and all the, the things that you never even know about up here, uh, those guys led my heart in worship at least. I'm very thankful for their leadership here. Uh, I'm thankful for you guys being here today. If you're new with us, we are in the middle of a series, towards the end of a series that we are working on called What Would Jesus Undo? And today we are going to be uh, in our second to last sermon on that. And so if you would turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, Luke chapter 18, we'll hang out there. It's going to be a little bit different um, kind of style of sermon from what I usually do. I spend a lot more time in the text early on for most of the sermons. Uh, But for this particular one, uh, we're going to spend a lot more time kind of defining some things before we get into the text. So uh, just know that we here at this church, we call our faith family, as we are the church gathered to worship this morning. We believe that God's word was given to us so that we may know God for who he is and love him because he first loved us. And we know that's true because he sent us Jesus. The Jesus who is fully God and fully man and worth more than all of creation combined. And the Bible says that through him, for him, and by him were all things created. That he came and lived the life that we could not live and died the death that we deserve so we could be brought into this family of God. Reconciled back to God even though we are still sinful beings and God is holy. And so today we worship him in many ways as we gather. And one of those is through singing. We do it through giving. We do it through prayer. We're doing it now through the word of God as we preach that. But this week, what I want you to kind of focus on that we're going to see, we're going to talk about all these things that what would Jesus undo if he showed back up in our lives in a, like if he just appeared in this faith family today, what are some things that he might undo in our faith family or undo in our personal lives? And this one is one that's really kind of sneaky. It's one that's hard to put your finger on. And most of us, while we would admit that we have a little bit of this problem, we don't really recognize the severity of the problem that we have regarding this particular topic. And so I want you to get it kind of ready for it. Okay, I'm going to put it in southern ease first, and then I'll put it in more theological wording second. Are you ready? Okay, I think the thing today we're going to look at that Jesus would undo, surely want to undo, if he were to kind of lay it out for us, is that he would come back and talk to us about our haughtiness, our haughtiness. You know that word? Some of you do, some of you don't, because if you're below about 30, I don't know if you know that word. But it is a word that is like staunchly Southern in my understanding of that word personally. Uh, Let me put it to you in a different context, different wording. The wording I would use for that theologically would be spiritual pride. Got that one a little better? Spiritual pride or haughtiness, spiritual pride. Let me um, say this on the front end before we kind of define that. I think spiritual pride is one of the most deceptive and one of the most damaging of all of our sins. That's a big statement. I think it's one of the most damaging and deceptive of all of our sins. It can ruin any relationship. In fact, it can deceive us into thinking we are in a good place with God when we might actually be living contrary to his word. And greater still, spiritual pride can destroy our ability to seek and to save the lost, the very mission that we are called to be on as those who have been born again, as those who have been brought into the faith family of God. And so I want you to read Luke with me in a few minutes 
And let's see what we can do in order to kind of combat that. But ultimately, what Christ has already done for us to combat that. But before we get there, let's define things a little bit. In fact, it's going to take a little bit longer than just a little bit. Uh, let me give you a definition. There's a guy named C.J. Mahaney. Um, he's been kind of controversial in things in the past uh, few years. Uh, I like his definition, though, of, of pride. And let me give it to you out of his book called Humility, a great little treatise on humility uh, that I think everybody should read. Uh, C.J. Mahaney says this, pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence upon him. I'm going to say it again. Pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence upon him. Now, most of us would say we never think that we are God. We never would ever say we're trying to aspire to that or get there, but we're going to kind of break this down. Let me give you the converse, his definition of humility. He says, humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and his moral perfection and his being completely other than, always good, always right, always doing the right and good thing all the time. It's his very character of who he is, that assessing ourselves in light of his holiness and our sinfulness. Two pieces there. Let me give you some scriptures that talk about pride a little bit. You've probably heard some of these before. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now, our proverb of in, the, in the American world, we just say pride goes before a what? Fall. We shorten it, right? Same thing, though. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. I don't know if we realize the severity of our pride before God who is holy, how great this sin is. In fact, scriptures talk about it all over the place. Isaiah, when he's speaking on behalf of God, when he's delivering the message to Israel, says, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. That day he's referring to is the day of judgment. Think of it in that sense now when I say it again. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It will be brought low. All pride, all haughtiness will be brought low at some point. I'm going to give you a couple of little things about pride before we jump into the text. Number one, pride is a sneaky and deceiving sin. Did you hear that? It is a sneaky and deceiving sin. And most of you still are not like, yeah, I get that. You're like, okay, I get it. Let's move on. I'm going to take a minute and unpack this for us. It's, it's kind of deep. I'm going to go to a, an old day guy, another one of my favorites, named Jonathan Edwards. If you've never read him, go and try this week. He's hard to read. Anybody ever read Edwards? If you have, you probably started off with his sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Sounds like a fun time, right? It's a great sermon. You should read it. Everybody should read it. I had to read it in English in high school. I don't know if you could do that anymore, but we had to. He was in the midst of an awakening here where many people were coming to faith. Some were being led towards a false gospel because of what was being preached. And so he was very careful about what he said, and he was kind of seen as a spiritual father in a way to a lot of people that are living today, that are preaching today, that I look to as experts in the field. And this is what he said about pride. He said, pride is much more difficult to be discerned. This is an essay on discerning 
spiritual pride. He says, pride is much more difficult to be discerned than any other corruption because of its very nature. That is, pride is a person having too high an opinion of himself. We get that, right? A person having too high of an opinion of himself. Is it any surprise then, he says, that a person who has too high an opinion of himself is unaware of it? I mean, how many people do you know that have too high opinion of themselves actually realizes they have too high of an opinion of themselves? I'd ask you to point some people out, but you might be one of the ones that get pointed out, right? You don't realize it, otherwise you wouldn't do it. His thinking is that he thinks that the opinion he has of himself has just grounds, and therefore, it's not too high. If the grounds of the opinion of himself crumbled, he would cease to have such an opinion. So he justifies himself. That's what spiritual haughtiness or pridefulness is. You have a very high opinion of yourself, much higher than it should be, but you think that it's justified, right? Kind of like the poor kid that always thought he was better at whatever sport than he really was. You know what I mean? Or the guy who thought he was better in your career field than what he really is at what he does. We all have some of those, right, stories? Maybe that was you. Maybe that was a friend. Maybe that was somebody you finally talked to. Jonathan Edwards goes on, he says, spiritual pride takes many forms and shapes, one under another, and encompasses the heart like the layers of an onion. When you pull one off, there's another underneath. Therefore, we have need to have the greatest watch imaginable over our hearts with respect to this matter, and to cry most earnestly to the great searcher of hearts for his help, because he that trusts his own heart is a fool. And you know that because you've trusted your heart down a path at some point and kind of made a fool of yourself, right? Am I the only one? Our hearts lead us astray. And we always think higher of ourselves than we actually should. It's always there in some form. In fact, Edwards gives a list of seven forms of spiritual pride. And I want to break this down for just a minute. So I just want you to listen to this. If you want notes on this, just email me. Text me at that number in your bulletin. I'll be glad to send it to you. Just listen to this for a minute. See, let's just wash over you and see if you might fall into any of these categories. In fact, before I even go any further, let me pray and ask God to reveal to us where we might fall inside of these categories. So let me just ask that now. Father, would you give us understanding today that's beyond us? Would you show us our hearts? Would you reveal to us the areas of spiritual pride from which we need to repent? Would you enlighten us by your Holy Spirit so we may see and understand and that we might recognize how awful it is to maintain it, and that we would give it over to you, Lord. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. Here we go. These are seven forms of spiritual pride listed out in Edward's treatise on it. Number one, the great fault finder, right? The great fault finder. This is where you see all the faults in everybody else, and you might like to even point them out. And if you don't, you at least think about them inside and maybe share them with your best friend or your spouse, your kids. But you don't share them with everybody else. But you always see the faults in everybody else, and they're vast. They're out there. And even if you don't talk about it, you see it. You know what they could do to make it better. You know how they could fix that problem. And you may say, that's not me. Yes, it is. It's us. Because when you go to Walmart and you walk through the line or you walk down the aisles, you always see somebody that you think in your head, oh, poor them. Bless their heart. If they'd only do this, right? We know. The great fault finder. Second one, 
would be a harsh spirit or ministering with a harsh spirit. Edward says about this person, Christians who are but fellow worms, that's what scripture talks about us in Psalms, ought at least to treat one another with as much humility and gentleness as Christ treats them. But instead, often we treat each other with a harsh spirit. We'll come down on people really hard. I'm very guilty of this in my own family. I can come down really hard on somebody for making a mistake when it's just a mistake or when they do something sinful even because I act like I have no sin, right? A harsh spirit. That's a, that's a part of pride. Thirdly, here's the third one, putting on pretenses. Put it another way, superficiality, right? Acting like you've got it all together. You know, working on the sins that are the most visible publicly to everybody else. But when it comes down to the ones that are secretive, you kind of justify those and don't deal with those that much because they're not really causing any problems out here. And we had talked about that last week even. Fourthly, takes offense easily. In other words, you're defensive. If you get real defensive when somebody says something that seems to show your sinfulness or that shows how you're not living up to speed, or maybe even you just see somebody else growing in their faith and you begin to tear them down in your mind. Or maybe you see them excelling in something at your workplace and you begin to tear them down because it's so easily to get that pride back up when you tear somebody else down, right? So you take offense at things very easily. Another one, presumption before God and man. Presumption before God and man. You know, we have been told and told and told that you should boldly approach the throne of God. And we should. That does not mean you don't do so humbly. Boldly approaching the throne of God does not mean running on in with your sin engaged like it doesn't matter. God is a holy God. In fact, the scriptures tell us over and over again. Psalm 2.11 says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Because you stand before an almighty God. The Israelites were very excited to be out of slavery, even though they moaned about it a lot. But when they got to the mountain where the law was going to be given to Moses, they trembled at the fear of being in the presence of a holy God. They would not even get close to the mountain. Philippians 2.12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, Paul says, but much more in my absence, listen, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It is healthy to fear something or someone that could destroy you. You understand? It is good and right to fear that thing. It is good for my kids to fear the stove. It is good for us to fear things that can destroy us. It keeps us in the right path, right? Some of us don't get that. That's why there's a fence around Knock Little Falls. Right? It is good to fear. We should worship with fear and trembling as we rejoice. Because we are sinners stepping into the presence of a holy God who should destroy us. But instead, he put that wrath out on his son and crushed him instead on the cross. Another one, hungry for attention. I'm sure none of you are hungry for attention. I'm very selfish. I like attention. Not necessarily like this. I like attention like for my wife. When I get home, I want her to, to hold my hand or to put her arm around me or to give me a kiss. And I want to have all of her attention. But I have five little ones that demand attention. And I get a little jealous sometimes. I'm just being honest, right? Not that I don't love them, want them to have attention. I just want a little more. You know what I'm saying? 
And she gives me a lot of attention. Don't hear me wrong. I just, I just want more. I'm hungry for it. It's all about me. Remember that old song? You remember that song like in the 90s? It's all about you. I will not sing it, but it's all about you, Jesus. Oftentimes in my head, I will sing this about others and also about myself. When they do something very selfish, I'll say it to their face. It's all about you, Charles, or whatever. You know, like I'll, I'll say that thing. How about neglecting others? Neglecting others. We are dead, brothers and sisters. We died when Christ made us alive in him. It's no longer we who live, but Christ that lives within us. And so if we're neglecting others, we're missing the point. We're here to be like Jesus, to seek and to save the lost. 1 Peter 2.17, honor everyone. That's a scriptural imperative. That means it's a command. There is no deciding if we want to do that. It says honor everyone, even the people that disagree with us theologically, even the people that disagree with us morally, even the people that disagree with us and what we told them to do at work and we're their boss or we're over them, we still need to honor them. That means respect them, show them respect, honor them by being someone who recognizes that you and I are just as sinful as they might be in that moment. Honor them, even more so. It says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. Listen to this, honor the emperor. We don't have an emperor, but we have somebody kind of in that spot, right? And you may not like him, but we're supposed to honor him, according to Scripture. Neglecting to pray for him or anybody else that the Lord puts on our heart is a gross, disobedient movement. These are all some of the samples of things that we could be living in in pride that we don't even recognize it. Let me take it a step further. Pride is not only a sneaky sin... But pride is also a pregnant sin. You ever heard of that? How many of you guys say it in different ways? I just like to alliterate. So pride is a pregnant sin. In fact, pride gives birth to many other sins. But we have to realize that our sin of pride is what is at the root of a lot of these other sins if we were to actually repent and find freedom in the cross of Christ. So I'm going to give you a few more of these as quickly as I can. A guy named Joe Thorne. He wrote another list about these sins that come from pride, and he explains them. I'm just going to, I know this is horrible, I'm just going to read them to you. There's 11 of them. I'll go fast. Are you ready? Anybody else ready? Okay, good. Number one, covetousness. Coveting what other people have. Because you believe you deserve something more than others do. Ungodly ambition. Because you believe that you are most qualified, and the idea of someone else being preferred over you is an insult to your perceived worth. Boasting. Because everyone should know who you are and what you have accomplished. You see how it works? It's all coming from pride. He goes on. Contention. Because in picking fights, you feel a sense of superiority over those who may or may not be in error. Be careful, spouses. Right? Unthankfulness because you deserve everything you get. So did you get that one? That's one you just don't even think about. You just don't do it. It's a sin of omission. You just don't do it, and therefore you're being unthankful because you deserve everything you get. You say, no, I don't think that, but we act like it, don't we? Because we don't thank the Lord or thank someone else for it. How about this selfishness? Because others do not. 
self-deceit, because it's easier to believe you are something when in fact you might be nothing. How about a judgmental attitude? Because you believe the errors of others are much more serious than your own. Or gossip. Because you look so much better when telling others how awful someone is. This great Puritan Mayo said that the proud endeavor to build their own praise upon the ruins of others' reputation. How about complaining? Because none of the body in the church, nobody in the church does that, right? There's no history of that in Exodus all the way up till now, Right? Complaining because God should have consulted with you before orchestrating the events of your daily life. Or hypocrisy. Talked about that last week. Because you must hide the truth, your own failures, in order to avoid shame and accumulate praise. Listen, I'm here to tell you today, brothers and sisters, I'm going to give it to you in one succinct, well, not short, but succinct statement. And then we're going to go right into Luke. Don't let sinful pride slay your soul. Instead, humble yourself before the Holy Savior. Don't let your sinful pride slay your soul. It is a monstrous sin. And it can make you think you're okay with God when really you are not in an okay relationship with God. So let us humble ourselves before a holy Savior. Look with me, Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Luke does us a favor by telling us what this is about before we even get there. Luke 18, verse 9 and on. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Okay, again, he's saying he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt because none of us ever do that, right? Verse 10, Jesus talking telling the parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Lord, help us to understand this text this morning. We may know you and make much of you for it, and that we might see ourselves for who we are. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Look, don't let sinful pride slay your soul. Humble yourself before the Holy Savior. So let me just start off. Go back to verse 11 and 12. Let me go up to that, starting in verse 9. Let me kind of break it down. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The temple was on a hill. That's why they go up to the temple and they come down from the temple. Okay? Even though Jerusalem was kind of on a hill too, the temple's higher up. That was on purpose. These two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee would have been the religious of the religious, zealous, knowing the law, knowing the scriptures, Going to temple regularly would have been one who knows what it means to be a follower of the one true God. The tax collector would have been seen as a traitor. 
is the one who was extorting the Jewish people, the Israelites, taking their money and giving it to their occupier, Rome. He would have been hated. He would have made his living by adding a little bit on top of the taxes he collected, taking a little extra for himself. That's generally what would happen. Maybe this guy did. Maybe he didn't. We do not know. What we do know is that everybody would hate that guy. Okay, so you can't say that it's like, oh, he's like an IRS agent. No, we don't hate IRS agents. We just don't like having to pay taxes. Okay, this is like paying taxes if Russia invaded and we paid taxes to Russia. You understand? That's kind of the mindset. Or pick any other country that you don't want to pay taxes to. This is the idea. And they would not like him at all. And so when you see these two, this is a very different story than what you would expect in the beginning of it. So you've got these two guys. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, one that everybody looks up to and says, man, they are the one I need to be like, and one a tax collector, the one nobody wants to be like. Verse 11, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Let me give you two major points as we walk through this today. The first one, we all need more mercy than we can imagine. We all need more mercy than we can imagine. Don't gloss over that statement. Don't deceive yourself into thinking your sin is less than another's. That's what this guy does, verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. He's not going up, trying to get get all his friends together and then praying this. He's standing by himself. Standing was the normal way to pray then. He's standing by himself, and he prayed like this. God, I thank you. He's giving him credit. He's giving him a prayer of thanksgiving. Very psalmodic, right? I mean, it's very what we should think. You thank the Lord. He said, I thank you, God. He's giving him credit on the front end here. I thank you, God. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. It was, I thank you. God, I thank you. Notice, first of all, there's five I statements here by this guy in like very small amount of sentences. He says, God, I thank you. This could be like our, some of our prayers. God, I thank you that I'm not like these guys. I thank you that I'm better than these folks. That's what he's saying. And I thank you that I'm not a murderer. I thank you that I'm not in prison right now. I thank you that I have a great job. I thank you that I have a good education. I go to a great school. I thank you that I have a wonderful faith family that I get to serve. I thank you. These, these all could be our statements, but listen what he says. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners or robbers or swindlers, right? Because those are worse than me. I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust. Even there's a wordplay here in this whole passage. You notice this? He uses this word unjust, which means that one who breaks the law We've all broken the law. Every one of us have broken the law. Later on, Jesus says down, he says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, made righteous, not being a lawbreaker, talking about the great sinner, the tax collector. So this guy says, I am thankful to you, God, that I am not like other men, extortioners, the unjust, or adulterers, 
or even like this tax collector right here. And you may think, I don't ever do that. But every time you walk by somebody and think like, ah, man, they just do this, man. Ooh, don't touch me. You know, or, oh, man, gosh, did you smell that person? Did you see how they talk to their kid? <sighs> I would never do that. How could that? They should be arrested for how they were walking down the street and acting like that. Like, do, do you understand? That's what's going on in our hearts a lot. Don't deceive yourself into thinking your sin is less than another's, even though it might be covered up a little better or might be polished a little more. We all need more mercy than we can imagine. Let me say this too. Your going above and beyond in your religiousness doesn't negate the severity of your sin and your infinite need for the Savior. Look at verse 12. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The reason he says those things is because when he makes a statement saying he fasts twice a week, really there's only one time required for fasting. That's on the day of redemption. Okay? There's no, this like, big one day of the year they need to fast on. And he's fasting not just one day a week, but two days a week, probably Monday and Thursday. It's a good dividing up of the time. They had reasons for that. But he's saying, I go above and beyond, God. I take it next level. Thank you for what I do. And then says, right behind it, I give tithes of all that I get. And you say, well, we're supposed to do that. Okay, yes. But what he's kind of saying, and you see it in other places like Jesus talking about how they tithe of their herbs and stuff. The person who brought in the crop tithes of that. When you get paid, you tithe those things. He said, when I buy this thing, I even tithe of that too. Okay? So it's like saying, I don't know, you bought five pumpkins and you gave one back to the Lord. Okay? That's like extra tithing. So he's standing by himself, he prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Brothers and sisters, it is not by our works, but by his faith that he's given to us to be called our faith that we are forgiven. And that we are saved from the wrath of our sin. Romans 3, 23 through 28. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even though we're made to reflect that perfectly. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are, listen to this, justified, made right with him, declared righteous, declared a right rule follower. We are justified by his grace as a gift, it says. Through, this is how we get it, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So it's given to us as a gift. We get faith as a gift through Jesus dying on the cross and bringing us back to be with God because he paid the debt that we owe. You see? Through that redemption, faith is given to us by his grace as a gift, which makes us justified. Okay? So all this is done through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That means an appeasement of God's wrath. Put forward by an appeasement of God's wrath by his blood. That his blood spilled out for us, appeased the wrath of God. It means he took down the wrath of God so we don't have to. 
The wrath we should have been taking on ourselves for all eternity was poured all out on Jesus, and he made it right. He made us right, declares us right. He appeased that wrath that needed to be poured out on us. So whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, listen, to be received by works? No, by faith. By faith. He says, this was to show God's righteousness. Get it? It's not to show our righteousness. It's to show his righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, in other words, seeing what would happen, knowing what would happen, directing all things, in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. All these sins that happened before Jesus came, he passed over former sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then, what becomes of our boasting, Paul asks. So what do we have to boast in? It's not ours. We didn't do it. It's not even about us. It's about his righteousness being on display. He says, it, our boasting, it is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, he says, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That is good news, brothers and sisters. Because if it was up to us to abide by the law, we would all be in hell. We cannot ever do all the things necessary to make us right with God, to live a life perfectly. Because you've tried and tried and tried and tried. And sometimes we give over into the sin because we get tired of trying. But then you try and you try and you try because you've been redeemed and you can't sit there. And God keeps moving you forward. But you can't do it. God did it for us in Jesus. And he makes us right with him. So don't let sinful pride slay your soul. Humble yourself before the Holy Savior. Here's that second piece. Our pride, that sneaky, pregnant pride, can only be destroyed by seeing and believing the depth of our sin. You thought I was going to say Jesus, right? By seeing and believing the depth of our sin in light of the holiness of God. That's how it gets destroyed. You can't be prideful when you see how awful you are. Do you understand? It's hard for me to walk out of the house thinking I look good when I stare at myself in the mirror long enough. You know what I'm saying? You don't have to say yes to me, but I'm talking about yourself now, right? The problem is that we don't do that. We glance in the mirror to see if the teeth are clean and to see if the hair looks like it's brushed well enough or if I got all the hairs off my face I, need, I intended to shave, and then we get out of there because nobody wants to look at that self longer than you have to, Right? Look, we begin to understand the filthiness and the disgusting nature of our sin when we begin to see the supreme value and worth of our Savior's blood poured out for us on the cross of our redemption. Look at verse 13 and 14. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. So the Pharisee was probably in the middle of the court. Okay, of, the, of the men, Jews, standing in there together, kind of the inner court there. And this guy was standing far off, maybe at the edge of the court of the Gentiles, because even those people wouldn't want him around because he's a tax collector. He says, he's standing far off, but not even lift up his eyes to heaven. 
He, he knows he should approach boldly in some ways, right? He knows this to be part of the stuff talked about all through Scripture. He knows that. But instead, he's at the edge, going to where God's presence is supposed to be. He is standing at the edge, and he won't even look up. He's not worthy enough to look upon the king. And instead of saying, thank you, God, for all the things I'm not... Instead of showing God all the things he does, he beat his breast because he's at his end. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me. In other words, I, I need your mercy. Please give me mercy. I'm a sinner. Man, are you broken over your sin like that? David was in Psalm 51. He starts off in Psalm 51 saying, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Listen, against you, you only, he says, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, this is him saying that on the heels of him hooking up with another lady that he saw bathing on her roof who was married to a guy that he ended up having killed so he could be with her because he got her pregnant. Right? The guy, the guy that's the, the man after God's own heart. Right? And this is his prayer when he comes to him after God took his son from him as a part of the result of that sin. And he writes this out saying these things. For I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned. Now he sinned against that woman. He sinned against her husband. He sinned even against his own child in that way. And he also sinned against God. But what he is saying as he talks to God is that when I see my sin lined up against your holiness, the, the difference is so vast between that and me against another person that this is the only thing that's noticeable is my sin against you. This is really the only sin that matters in its totality in comparison. This is how great my sin is. And you are blameless in your judgment of me. You are right in your judgment of me. Are you crushed? Biblical word we use is contrite. Are you crushed under the weight of the wrath of God that we brought down upon his perfect son? Have you ever been crushed under that? That you and I are the ones who put Jesus on the cross? They nailed him to it because we gave the sins, even now are giving sins to that cause? That he had to be punished for us? Hebrews 2.17 describes it. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers. He calls us his brothers when we did that to him. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, to make appeasement of God's wrath for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We have hope, brothers and sisters. 
you may be the most prideful person in this room, or you may think you're not, and God may be revealing to you over the next several days that you are super prideful, but there is hope for the prideful. If you will humble yourself before a holy God and say, give me mercy, Father. I'm a sinner. And how much of our prayer time is because we're broken over our sin before a holy God? Don't let sinful pride slay your soul. Humble yourself before the holy Savior. I'll read one more. 1 Peter 5, 6 through 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The very end of this, right? After this guy said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he means that in a bad way. Be brought low, like we read in Isaiah. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Today, brothers and sisters, I call upon you, me. The word is calling upon us to humble ourselves. Get low before the Lord. Become like the tax collector because we are. We are no better. We are traitors to the one who died for us. We continue to go against him. And yet he died for us on the cross. This is not a browbeating. This is saying give yourself over so that you might enjoy him to the fullest. And that he might exalt you as he lifts you up to be with him forever and ever. Put your hope in the king. Put your hope in the savior. Don't put your hope in your abilities. Don't put your hope in putting others down. Or or thinking you've got there already. Or you're a lot better than you used to be. Maybe you are but only by the grace of God. Because faith is a gift to you from him, not of yourself. And when there is nothing else, and if you don't have Jesus as the one you depend on, and you don't recognize that situation to be what it is, you will have nothing to rely on when the world comes crashing down around you. But today is the day of redemption. Put your hope in the Lord. Set yourself low before the Lord. Humble yourself, because pride will slay your soul if you do not lay it down before him and ask him to reveal it and to fight it and to kill it within you. Let us do that and let us see him work wonders in this place as he exalts his son Jesus in and through us and we see people come to faith. And we see this place used for magnificent work in the kingdom, not for self, but that we might be a part of something greater because he is great and we make much of him. What would it look like if that was our church? Let us first kill the sin before it starts to kill us. Slay that sinful pride. Humble yourself before the Holy Savior. Father, we need you to do this. We cannot, but you can. We need you to do this because we are sinful people who do not recognize our pridefulness. Lord, it is so easy to fall back into it. As Edward stated, it's like it just envelops our heart in layers. And every time we see one and rip it away, there's another one there that we do not yet see. So, Lord, would you continually work within us to peel the layers away that we might see it and walk with you and killing it. And that we might run back to you in humility and confess to you that, God, we need your mercy. Father, I pray this morning you work in us that way. Pray that you do that, not just for us, but for you to be made much of in a way that shows how great you are 
because we see how much need we have for you and how much we truly depend on you. Lord, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.